Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publication. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Joseph Clark to talk about his book, Echoes Chambers, Architecture and the Idea of Acoustic Space. Joseph is an assistant professor of art history at the University of Toronto and is a licensed architect. Joseph, thank you very much for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Brian. So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I actually grew up in the Midwestern United States in Southern Ohio, and I studied architecture at the University of Cincinnati. And after I finished architecture school, I spent several years uh, working in New York City for Eisenman Architects and Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. And, um, and then I shifted into history. I, I did a PhD in architectural history at Yale. And today I'm on the art history faculty of the University of Toronto in Canada, where I teach modern architectural history. But I, I actually think maybe I should back up because my, my motivation for writing this book really came earlier. Like I said, I grew up in Southern Ohio where I sang in choirs, both at school and at church. And that experience taught me how much the acoustics of a building matter. When you're singing in a room with good acoustics, the architecture actually works with you. It, it supports the sound you produce and helps you hear the other musicians. That's why we all sound so good singing in the shower. But in a room that works against you, it's so much harder to sing and the results are not nearly as satisfying for the audience. So when I went to architecture school, I, I came into school as interested in how buildings sound as how they look. And I actually remember being surprised um, at how many of my fellow architecture students had some kind of music in their background, either you know playing in, playing in a band, playing guitar, taking piano lessons, whatever. But the way that we learn to design in architecture school is almost entirely visual. And in my experience, other than about, I don't know, two or three hours worth of lectures on acoustics, which mostly consisted of equations, sound was really not something that we were taught to think much about. 
And that's kind of strange because acoustics is something that I think most people like on an instinctive level uh, understand is a really important dimension of the physical environment. It can make the difference between a building working and not working. Right. It can profoundly change the way we experience architecture. But for, for architects, for professional architects, it's kind of cloaked in mystery. And um, so that's really the reason I set out to um, write this book to bring some historical perspective to architects' struggle to make sense of the problem of acoustics. That's great. And so it kind of leads me right into our first discussion. I'll be honest, you know, when I first picked the book up, I was expecting kind of a manifesto on how to enhance the acoustics of a space. And so while that's in there, that's it's definitely not the focus of the book, and we'll get into that. And so one thing you noticed and that I wasn't aware of is that of all the different disciplines and kind of specialities of architecture, it does seem like acoustics is the least unanimously agreed upon. It's been contested. It seems to be almost very controversial. And I don't think many people are aware of that. Well, many people aren't aware of just how, for how long architects have been wrestling with the problem of sound in buildings and trying to make sense of it. And so... My book, um, it's you know, it, it is a predominantly a history book, and it covers the period from around the mid seventeenth century to the mid twentieth century, mm-hmm. um, so about three hundred years. And um, over this period, I, I look at a series of architects who really wrestled with um, uh, trying to make sense of sounds, behavior in space, trying to represent sound in the design process, um, including actually how to represent sound in a drawing, because of course. We architects think (laughs) through drawings. We think graphically. And if we can't represent something in a drawing, then um, chances are we're not going to be able to design um, effectively for it. Right. Um, And so, yeah, sound has been a real provocation for architects. And um, I look at, uh, you know, the case studies in the book, um, a number of architects who really figured it out, right? They they found a technique to to deal with sound and they... um, achieved at least some level of, of mastery of it and were successful in integrating it into their designs. But I also look at cases of architects who tried and failed, and they, they um, put forward theories of acoustics that were tested, and, um, and they just, it turned out, didn't work very well. But I wanted to understand in those cases why they failed. Um, and the argument is that actually we, we should spend more time thinking about architectural failure, because um, if, you, if you fail intelligently, um, then other people can actually learn from your failure. And so, um, so this, is, this is kind of an important principle of any kind of experimental architecture, including experimentation with um, sound in buildings. Not every experiment succeeds, um, but if you're following the scientific method, even a failed experiment uh, can teach you something and you can learn from it and the discipline can advance. And you you had mentioned case studies, and so I, I was hoping we could dive into them a little more, maybe get a little more context on sure. this, con- this contested architectural theory. Yeah. Um, so, um, so f- f- to to pick one for example, um, in the uh, in the eighteenth century, in eighteenth century France, um, there was a a kind of boom in the building of theaters, and right. theaters and opera houses were were really central to French culture during this period. This is the, um, the decades before the French Revolution. 
um, when the cultural power of the the upper middle class, the, the bourgeois class of people who had earned their money from capitalism, um, uh, loved to go to the theater. This was the center of, of entertainment and theater even had a, uh, a central importance to um, French uh, politics. This was a forum where ideas were debated. Um, so theaters were um, becoming larger and larger and the people who went to the theater um, were they had paid to buy a ticket and they wanted to be able to hear the performance. So it wasn't enough just to be sitting there in, in your seat and just to go and see and be seen by other people, but you actually wanted to hear what the actors were saying or what the performers were, were singing. So of course the acoustics of these buildings was absolutely critical. And because entertainment was becoming a more kind of, of diversified market. Um, if people were dissatisfied with the acoustics of one theater, they would just go somewhere else. And so um, the builders of theaters really um, told architects, you know, you have to figure out this problem of acoustics. We, we can't, it's not uh, something we can avoid. It's, it's like absolutely central to the success of our buildings. And so I look at a number of architects, but, but um, principally an architect named uh, Pierre Pott, who uh, wrote the most extensive book on architectural acoustics at this up to this time, um, and it was it was really a, a theory of acoustics in theaters. And he didn't personally design a theater or build a theater of his own, um, but it was a very influential book. And a number of architects in the years that followed um, uh, took up his method. And um, this is a case where the method ultimately didn't work. And in fact, there was a, um, a, a very large theater, 2,000-seat theater built in Berlin around the turn of the beginning of the 19th century um, that quite uh, faithfully followed the model that Pierre Pott had put forward. Um, and right. the architect was very proud that he had, he had used this systematic acoustic theory. In fact, that was a major argument for his um, design. Um, and it, it really didn't work at all. And everybody started to complain about this. There was this echo in the theater. And so the um, words of actors sounded garbled um, because you couldn't uh, distinguish the, the nuances of actors, uh, what they were saying. So it's an example of um, a, a theory that failed. Um, but, uh, but the next generation of architects studied this building, they were actually very interested to study what went wrong. And so they looked at the theory, they looked at the um, failed building, and then they adapted and they put forward new acoustic theories um, that actually did succeed. And so you had mentioned kind of everyone following this this theory, even though it didn't exactly work. And, there, and you've provided quite a few case studies in the book of something similar. One that jumped out at me, and I'll, I'll probably mess this up, is, is his name was Kircher. Uh, yes, one of the um, earlier... his name was, was Athanasius Kircher, and Kircher, um, okay. he was a philosopher in the 17th century. Um, he was actually a, a, a scholar and a Catholic clergyman. Um, so he was he was from Germany, and he moved to Rome and uh, joined the Jesuit order and became a professor at the Jesuit College in Rome, and he wrote numerous books actually on, on sort of every imaginable subject from um, Egyptology to magnetism. Um, but his, one of his longest books was about uh, music and acoustics. And acoustics at this point was really a kind of um, subfield of the study of music. 
Um, so it, it was an extremely um, uh, influential work. Um, and I argue that principally because of its illustrations and what distinguishes right. this book is its amazing images. And for the past like 350 years, um, people have gone back to this book, not to read the text because <laughs> The text actually isn't that interesting, but because of Kierker's efforts to visualize sound graphically, and he and his team of illustrators, who are mostly um, anonymous, uh, produced some incredible diagrams and visualizations of um, the effects of sound moving through space. So, for example, um, uh, one of the wild uh illustrations of this book is of a, a, a palace. And um, on the exterior wall of the building, there's a, like a giant hole. Right. Um, and the it's, a, it's actually a kind of spiraling funnel. And the idea is that is to collect sound from the street outside and channel it into a room on the interior of the building where the acoustic funnel ends in the mouth of a statue. And so there's an image, there's an a illustration of a guy standing inside the, uh, the palace in front of the statue, and it's as though the words are coming out of the statue's mouth, but it's actually sound from out in the street. And this was not only a hypothetical example, uh, Kierker actually um, had a, a museum of his own. He had a sort of cabinet of curiosities of, of wondrous objects in Rome. And um, he would give visitors a tour through his museum. And the last object, the one that was really supposed to impress them, was a talking statue that probably worked on similar principles. So he was not only studying um, acoustics in an abstract theoretical way and producing diagrams of them for his book, but also actually experimenting in person with the uh, different kind of acoustic effects that you could obtain through architecture um, in his own residence in Rome. It, absolutely. And I do agree. I actually looked up a lot of his images after reading it because I found them pretty interesting myself. But uh, the, the kind of the point I was trying, going to get to is you had mentioned architects, you know, we love graphics. And so I think you termed it kind of for a long, for a long period of time, acoustics was studied purely as like a geometric, like two dimensional field. And so, yes. but that, of course, as you've said, is actually why a lot of failures come about because acoustics operate in a 3D realm and it's kind of hard. We can draw lines all we want, but that might not be how it operates. Mm -hmm. And so I, I know that's a bit vague. The question I have is, although I thought back to every acoustic textbook I've studied since I was a student and I, and personally, I still see a lot of diagrams in a two-dimensional plane. Do you feel like we've improved, come a long way, or are we still making the same mistake? That's a great question. Um, I think the the challenge is that in order to that the the spatial movement of sound is is actually incredibly complicated if we right. were to model uh, precisely how um sound waves actually behave in a room um it would be uh far too difficult actually to to represent in any kind of form Absolutely. um so inevitably what we work with are abstractions of one kind or another and one kind of abstraction is uh, the sort of equations that um, contemporary acoustic engineers often use and have used for the past hundred years. Um, for example, there's, an, there's a famous um, equation developed around the turn of the 20th century to predict the reverberation time in a room, the length of time that sound will reverberate. 
Um, and it's an approximation because what it gives us is a kind of, of average value based on statistically um, how much sound energy will be in a room after a given amount of time. But it's an abstraction. It's just an abstraction using numbers. Um, right. Now, graphic diagrams are another kind of abstraction. And like any abstraction, you know, they're, they are uh, helpful in certain circumstances because they tell us certain things um, about uh, the behavior of sound. Um, but they're not actually capturing the full reality of it. And in certain cases, they might actually be misleading, as they were in many cases to architects whom I look at in this book who um, tried to uh, work with uh, graphic diagrams. But the one advantage of graphical methods, um, at least from an architect's point of view, is that we are graphical thinkers, right? I mean, we're, we're used to designing visually, and um, it tends to be, for most architects, much easier to work with diagrams than to work with complicated equations. Um, so, so actually, you know, I, I, I talk about the, this book as an architectural history of architectural acoustics, because right. what I'm interested in is the efforts, uh, not of engineers, but really of architects, of people who are, whose, you know, uh, uh, disciplinary understanding of buildings is formed through architecture, their efforts to make sense of sound. And uh, I think graphic diagrams play a really important role in that, although, as you point out, um, they have a lot of limitations too. And the trick, I guess, is um, learning um, not only how to visualize sound in diagrams, but also understanding that it is just an abstraction and, and there's a lot left out. And so um, right. the trick is ultimately to use the diagram, but then also understand um, what the limitations of diagramming are. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Absolutely. And so while I'm reading, and the great points you bring up, so while I was reading, I had a, a burning question the entire time, and you do address it in the final chapter, but I'm going to pretend like I didn't read the chapter. <laughs> okay. And so the question that, you know, it's very controversial, but architects have constantly throughout history, you make the case, have been trying to understand acoustics and apply it architecturally. But so the question arises, eventually, you know, electronics and microphones kind of enter the fray and then in my mind makes a lot of that need to understand almost seem a little obsolete and so again i know you address this in the final chapter with a specific architect so i was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit you know with the advent of microphones and speakers you know have we all completely not cared about acoustics anymore or is it still there yeah i mean that's 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 a really good question so um the architects that I look at in the 18th and 19th centuries were often concerned with how the building itself, through its form, could project sound through space, could amplify sound, could make it right. audible at a distance. And this was obviously a crucial concern before we had microphones and loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. But you, yes, you could ask the question in the, um, in the 20th century, uh, with the improvement of these um, a microphone and loudspeaker technology, does any of it matter? Or <laughs> can we just um, install a sound system? And that kind of 
replaces all of our, our old concern about acoustics. And um, not surprisingly, my, my answer is um, that acoustics still do matter. Right. Um, for one thing, you know it matters um, because the uh, acoustic effects um, produced by buildings like echo and reverberation are still fundamental parts of how we understand the meanings of sounds. And that's why when you listen to a lot of music, um, a, lot of, a lot of popular music has echo and reverb effects added to it. Mm-hmm. Um, to simulate the effects of what th- it would sound like in particular kinds of spaces. So the um, the kind of cultural meaning of um, acoustics is still very very important. Um, but also, of course, of course, the the acoustics of buildings matter as well. But electronics, uh, electronic technology is a part of that. And the final chapter of the book explores um, this kind of tension between um, the what you might call the passive acoustics of, of buildings and the active acoustic systems of um, electronic technology mm-hmm. um, in the case of Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier is, um, as, as we pr- probably know, one of the most famous uh, uh, modernist architects of the 20th century, highly influential figure. Um, but um, what many people may not know about him is his enduring fascination with sound and acoustics. He actually came from a musical family. His mother was a piano teacher. His brother was a composer and a musician. And although Le Corbusier was not a musician himself, he was fascinated by sound and uh, avant-garde music. He actually briefly considered becoming a music critic. Um, and he, he loved to go to the opera and go to concerts. Um, and he thought a lot about sound and acoustics. And he did a number of designs um, in which acoustics was absolutely central. And he worked with a, a number of different acoustical consultants in the design of those projects. Um, now, some of the largest acoustic projects that he designed were never built because they were competition entries that he lost. But he designed early in his career a number of large auditorium projects um, in which acoustics was meant to be a kind of a selling point of the design. And the building, there was no electronic technology. It was meant to be the, the form of the building itself would amplify the sound. And eventually he realized that he had to come to grips with um, electronic sound, with microphones with loudspeakers. He was actually uh, very taken with the medium of radio. Um, uh, In the 1930s, he gave a number of um, lectures on the radio. He actually came to to do a a tour of the United States and um, gave a a talk on NBC radio broadcast um, and got to visit Radio City Music Hall, um, which was a project that had very innovative microphone and loudspeaker systems installed in the building. Um, so um, in one of his later works, uh, the pilgrimage chapel at Ronchamp in France, um, he kind of wrestled with how to integrate um, architectural form and electroacoustic technology. And um, this was a, a building, this is a building that um, many architects uh, know and and Maybe um, some of your listeners have, have visited it in person. A lot of people who go there today visit the building in, in silence, and it's this very kind of peaceful, uh, meditative space. But actually, that's not Le Corbusier's intention. And he originally wanted to build a 
um, electroacoustic installation um, directly adjacent to the chapel. We would call it today sound art. The term sound art didn't exist in the 1950s, but it was that's what it was meant to be, um, a, a kind of giant uh, metal framework that would have loudspeakers mounted on it. And at different times of day, they would play um, both uh, ancient liturgical music, Christian music, um, but juxtaposed with very modern sounds like industrial sounds and sounds of, of jet airplane engines. And the idea was to produce a kind of acoustic montage um, to uh, be very jarring and to like defamiliarize um, the experience of, of being in this um, landscape with um, the, the chapel. So he really fought for to to be able to build this installation. Um, the his clients uh, in the end would not let him do it. They were already giving him a lot of leeway with the design of the building, which was very unconventional at the time for a Catholic church. Um, but even after the chapel was built, he kept pushing to build this electroacoustic installation. And um, my argument is that for him, it was an attempt to reconcile. Um, different theories of the of acoustics and different kinds of acoustic technology, and so I go through in the chapter my kind of reading of the design of the chapel itself and its relationship to the um, electronic installation. And so, speaking of reconcile, so again, I'm going to jump to the end a little bit here. So, of course, the book is you know focused on all these competing acoustic theories, but uh, assuming I understood correctly, you present the case that. The kind of correct answer, and I'm doing air quotes, you can't see it, is that uh, there should be a connection between the audio and the visual, which are two kind of almost seen as competing theories. But uh, my, my understanding correctly, you're saying that we kind of need to work on them both at the same time. That's absolutely right. Yeah, sometimes the issue is framed as a kind of um, almost uh, dualistic kind of, of opposition between um, hearing and seeing. Right, and what I argue is that uh, modern architects are are visually oriented people. I mean, there's no question that we think graphically, we sketch, we draw, um, we learn about buildings by looking at photographs of them. Um, that's not going to change, and and nor does it need to change. Um, but uh, if we if we want to be able to think intelligently about sound, one thing that architects need. Um, is to develop a, a kind of a vocabulary of acoustics and not just words to describe acoustics, but also a, a sort of visual vocabulary. And a lot of the architects that I look at in the book um, were experimenting with uh, graphic techniques for diagramming sound. Um, right. Those evolved over the centuries and perhaps in the 21st century, we need entirely new ways of visualizing sound. Um, but, um, in order to bring acoustics into the kind of scope of architectural thinking, I think some form of visualization is critical. I would agree. And I guess the question I have to follow up with that, I'll play devil's advocate. You know, obviously there are, you know, I've, I've worked on many projects that had acoustical consultants. And in fact, it's only been theaters and churches, which you make the cases where kind of acoustic theory originated. Yeah. And so, of course, they, at least the many I've worked with, they were great, but it's always computational models and, as you said, kind of equations. So are right. you making the case that uh, we should all be moving away from that method and maybe having our own understanding? 
Yes, um, up to a point. I mean, I actually think um, I, I also uh, have um, many friends who are uh, acousticians, who are who are trained, you know, as engineers, uh-huh. and are are in- incredible people and in- incredibly talented. And um, you know, a good acoustician has this amazing ability, uh, like to walk into a room. And to immediately discern its acoustic <laughs> properties, or maybe like he he, could, he can walk into a room and clap his hands and listen to the echo, right? And tell from that things about the materials of the room and the form of the room, the size, um, and and even to pick up on background sounds in the room that that I might not notice at all, right. um, but uh, but a trained acoustician can discern. Um, so it's an it's an amazing ability. Um, but yeah, the way that acousticians uh, work is through computational models and through equations. And that's just not a language that architects, most architects are, are very comfortable with. Um, but I think if we want uh, to design meaningfully for sound, and, and if we want our, our buildings to, um, to imaginatively be able to manipulate the acoustic dimension of our designs, it's important for architects to have some kind of, like I say, of a vocabulary for talking about sound, for visualizing sound um, that is ours, that that is compatible with the ways that we think, the ways that we design, um, right. and also and also to have a, a shared language that we can uh, talk with with acousticians with. Because for major projects, um, of course, you're going to want to have a professional acoustician involved. And um, hopefully involved at an early stage in the design process, so that they can actually be a real partner in developing the design concept of the project. Um, but um, but I would hope that uh, architects would not simply you know design a building and then at the last minute you bring in an acoustician and say you know here you know make it work uh, acoustically. <laughs> um, but you actually bring them in to um, to be able to work constructively together on an acoustic concept for the design. I, I agree. I- and so, of course, there's, you know, many other, you know, theories and case studies then that we're going to have to probably skip over so I don't keep you all day. And so the, the question I want to wrap up with is, you know, since the book has been published, you know, what what project have you taken on? You know, what what's occupied your time since the book came out? Oh, well, at the moment, I'm, I'm writing a new book about the okay. design of large open plan offices in the 1960s. Um, this is a period when Western economies were deindustrializing, and office work was becoming more central to society. And designers were developing new models of the office uh, designed to support uh, new kinds of collaborative work. And by the way, sound was very important in these offices because many people thought that as more computers came into the workplace, there would be less and less paperwork, right? Which seems ironic today, because uh, we know that didn't happen. But they thought that um, that increasingly workers would communicate with each other orally by talking. And of course, in a big open office, acoustics uh, was really key to making sure that people could communicate, but also have privacy and not be distracted by noise from other people. Um, so, um, so I think this is actually a timely thing to study right now, uh, because of course, <laughs> at the moment, we're all dealing with the ongoing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Many people who work in offices are trying to figure out whether yes. we even still need offices at all. Um, so, uh, so that's what I'm working on. Uh, so perhaps in the future, we can talk again then. I would love to. And yeah, it'd be very interesting to see, like, as you said, with the new office revolution we're facing. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. 
Oh, same here. So for everyone listening, the book is Echoes, Chambers, Architecture, and the Idea of Acoustic Space. I want to thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you.